Association of Nurse Practitioners, this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AAMP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Obesity is a chronic disease with significant medical, social, and economic consequences. Obesity affects different racial and ethnic groups at various rates. For example, non-Hispanic blacks and Hispanics have the highest prevalence of obesity. There are other factors that contribute to health disparities, including socioeconomic status, gender, sexual orientation, and age, just to name a few. We really need to think about how these factors affect our patients with obesity and how they may fit into more than one of these groups. There is so much more to consider than just the patient's height, weight, and medical history. Obesity is a multifactorial disease that requires thoughtfully individualized care. I am excited to welcome our experts for today's podcast. We have physician assistant Carly Burge, nurse practitioner Sam Christensen, and Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Hello, everyone. My name is Carly Burridge. I am a PA and a fellow of the Obesity Medicine Association in Glen Ellen, Illinois. I'm the current president of PAs in Obesity Medicine and the founder and owner of Gaining Health. And I'm Sandra Christensen. I am a nurse practitioner in Seattle, Washington. I have specialized in the treatment of obesity since 2005, and I own an obesity treatment clinic here in Seattle. I am a trustee on the Obesity Medicine Association Board of Trustees and a fellow of the Obesity Medicine Association. I love to talk about obesity with clinicians and I love to educate them on all the science and the art of treating people with obesity. So I thank you so much for your interest in our podcast today. All right, Sam. So tell us, what should NPs know about diverse populations when they are treating patients with obesity? Fill us in. Well, um, we want to consider all the different groups um, in which our patients might fit into. We want to look at race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, ability, and disability, Um, because they all influence the development, prevalence, and severity of obesity, as well as a treatment response. And these factors will often contribute to health disparities that we need to be aware of so that we can move towards health equity for all, uh, including those with obesity. And when we we think of these different groups, we think that a patient might fit into one of them, but we don't always stop to consider the intersectionality of them, meaning that one patient might be part of three or more groups. And so um, we want to think about how that intersection of, of their diversity is affecting them. Um, For example, uh, 
a patient may be a woman of color experiencing poverty, might be a gay man uh, who has a learning disability and limited access to healthcare, uh, could be a black man with an advanced college degree. And all of those factors as they layer for each person are going to affect uh, their health and in particular obesity and their response to treatment, as I mentioned. So we really wanna be able to view a person through that intersection of those factors. And one thing that we know for sure is that obesity disproportionately affects women, racial and ethnic minorities and people living in poverty. And there's a, a large population in our country of, of women who are living with all three of those. So uh, we really wanna think about the impact that, that that has on her and her health. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why it's also so important that when we're taking their medical history and their weight history, that their social history and asking about some of those factors is so important because in order, like you said, to truly assess the situation and to put together a treatment plan that's going to be individualized for that person, we need to know these things about them so that we can really help them with some of these things potentially that, that they're struggling with and some of the barriers that they have. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, the history's everything, right? And we wanna dive deeper than just medications and uh, medical conditions. Um, and one thing that's really come to light in the recent pandemic that we've been living through is that there has been an increase in food insecurity for people. Uh, Carly, can you tell us what the role of food insecurity is in people with obesity and how that has worsened during the pandemic? Yeah, this is, this is a huge topic that doesn't get discussed very much, but food insecurity is basically where people don't have the finances to either buy the food or their food doesn't last. Uh, so they're really concerned about being able to pay for their food. And we know that food insecurity is associated with an increased risk of hypertension, coronary artery disease, hepatitis, stroke, cancer, asthma, obesity. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And it's so many of these chronic medical conditions that people are dealing with these days. And people who are struggling with lower socioeconomic status, these social determinants of health play such a huge role in this. And unfortunately, the pandemic has only increased this divide. And we see that prior to the pandemic in the United States, about 13% of the population was struggling with food insecurity. And that has increased to about 23% currently. And 40% of people who are in food lines for food pantries and things like that have never been to these places before the pandemic. So we know that the pandemic has really increased this. And, and especially, unfortunately, we see this with mothers and mothers with young children. And of course, unfortunately, especially in these socioeconomically disadvantaged populations, including um, African-American, Hispanic, and also Native American populations. Yeah, yeah, it's really a big issue that was present prior to the pandemic and now has been exacerbated uh, by COVID. Um, also, one of the issues with food insecurity is that 
people might not have access to fresh vegetables and fruit, might not be able to afford them. And so they tend to eat more of the refined and ultra processed foods, which as we know, really contribute to obesity. So uh, during the pandemic, that actually worsened for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we see some studies that show that 69% of people in this population had to choose between food and utilities. 67% had to choose between food and transportation or between food and housing or education. And like you said, the most common way that people have found to stretch their budget, and this is 79% of people who are struggling with this, they choose to purchase those inexpensive, unhealthy foods because that seems to be one of their only options. They're having to choose between healthy food and a lot of these other things that they need to survive. So this is, this is a real issue. And unfortunately, it is those inexpensive, unhealthy processed foods that are generally much cheaper than the fresh vegetables and the healthier foods, which that's, that's the whole problem in and of itself. I mean, a, a Twinkie shouldn't be cheaper than an apple, right? If you look at all the ingredients in there and, and yet it is. So I think that that's another issue that we really need to start working on is, is how can we subsidize the healthy foods and not the unhealthy processed foods, which are not benefiting anybody. So, but th that's a whole other topic for another day. But t tell me, Sam, you talked a little bit also about women specifically, and we know that this is a population that's been particularly affected by all of this. So what factors are at play, would you say, specifically for women with obesity? Well, there's numerous factors. Um, whenever we talk about diversity, um, we have to consider bias because that's always part of it. And there's a significant uh, amount of weight bias that and stigmatization that people with obesity experience. And then if you layer in other uh, groups that they might be part of, uh, maybe a minority sexual orientation group or older or some kind of physical disability, um, we see that the bias just layers. And so um, that is the case uh, for women who experience more of the weight bias and stigma. There's a lot of issues with the gender pay gap that exists for all women, but it is even greater for those with obesity. Um, we see that that people with obesity and women in particular don't get promoted at the same rate as uh, their counterparts who don't have obesity. We see that um, even when they're performing well, they could uh, be terminated without any reason. And the statistics are um, and the evidence is really powerful. It's it's actually really hard to to think about and, and, and learn about, at least for me, because it's so unfair, you know, the whole weight bias stigma thing and that it's worse for women is a really big issue. And during the pandemic, I started to notice the disparities that women experienced grow. I, I witnessed in my clinical practice that my patients, uh, in particular, those who were mothers, all of a sudden were at home working, many of them, and they had children in school and they were all, you know, thrown into this. And the woman was the one who had to manage everything, who had to 
take care of the household, get the kids all set up on their laptops or whatever they were doing for school, and then still had their enormous uh, work responsibilities. Um, I also saw that women who were essential workers who had to leave the home uh, had these terrible dilemmas for about childcare. And I watched the challenges that these women had with their obesity during this time. And so it really has, de I've developed this um, deep curiosity about how, what women's roles are in society and how that impacts obesity. And that's an area I want to, um, I'm starting to dive into and develop a body of work to, to understand it better. So Carly, tell me about your experiences with women and obesity. Yeah, I, I think so much of what you said is so true. We saw it before the pandemic, but the pandemic just made it so much more obvious. And the stresses that are played, placed particularly on women with young children at home. I mean, I have school-aged children, and I couldn't imagine if I had to leave the house. And not only that, but when we're talking about doing... Uh, internet-based school, virtual school, you know, a lot of these families don't even have internet access or have the computers or have all of these things. And I just imagine the incredible stress that these women must have felt and men and everybody. But, you know, like you said, it usually primarily falls on the mothers, on the women. So I just can't even imagine. And I think we really need to start paying more attention to the effect of chronic stress. Because when we see these things like systemic racism and when we see things like food insecurity and all of these social determinants of health, these play a huge role in this chronic stress, sometimes referred to as this allostatic load, which is this cumulative burden of chronic stress and life events that affects people, right? We know that there are hormonal effects on this, these elevated cortisol levels, which, you know, mobilize all of these fuels, but then they're mental stressors. They're not physical stressors. So we're not burning off this fuel. And instead that fuel gets redeposited in the abdomen, contributes to insulin resistance. All of this stress contributes to insomnia and lack of sleep. And all of these things impact chronic diseases uh, including obesity, of course. So I really think it's so important that we start to look at how these chronic stressors are affecting our patients and especially our patients who are struggling with some of these inequalities. And that's in on top of the toxic stressors and the environmental toxins that the, the, some of these populations are exposed to more than others. So it's really just opens up a whole, a whole other part of medicine that, that hasn't previously really been looked at. And I think we have so much to learn from this still. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a known fact that stress is a risk factor for the development of obesity. And I would add um, its persistence and resistance to treatment. Um, it's really big, as you said, all the hormonal factors um, that really affect fat storage and ability to burn fat. Yeah, and not only that, but but also our decision-making, right? When you're trying to make decisions about keeping a roof over your head 
or whether to pay for utilities or your medical bills or, you know, those types of decisions, you know, deciding what's for dinner and whether it's healthy or not probably is not at the top of your priority list. So I think it just, it factors in in so many different ways. And I think another population that is affected by this, that is starting to get more attention, which is good that people are paying more attention to this, is the LGBTQIA plus population. And so we also see there these different populations that are experiencing a lot of this chronic stress and, and potentially trauma there that this really affects their obesity rates as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, just as we were discussing weight bias, you know, internalized bias um, often contributes to binge eating and purging as well. And um, we see this uh, with the LGBTQ uh, community that um, internalized homophobia is a big risk factor for binge eating. Absolutely. And I think this internalized weight bias, I think another word that we can maybe call that is the shame that people feel around the disease of obesity, right? And we know that this has such, a, such an impact on on also how well how well people are able to adhere to their programs. We know that there's higher dropout rates for physical activity, higher program attrition, like you stated, higher binge eating in people who really carry this shame, this internalized weight bias. So it's so important that we overcome this. So Sam, what do you think we can do to help overcome this weight bias that we see everywhere and also this internalized weight bias in patients, the shame? Yeah, really good question. Um, well, the first and most important thing is that we really need to help people, um, particularly our patients, but also our colleagues and our healthcare systems and all of our friends and acquaintances recognize obesity as a disease rather than a moral failing or a lifestyle choice. Because when it's framed in that manner, that can help people understand it better. And to put it on the same level as, you know, heart disease or diabetes or cancer and say, you know, this is a, 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 a serious chronic condition that warrants, you know, appropriate medical treatment, assessment, treatment, um, that can help change that uh, I, that bias that people have. Um, and I find that really, really, really important with my patients because even when they know that, they can revert back to that shame so easily. And, and so it's really important to continually remind people, you know, we're dealing with a chronic issue here and it's going to have its ups and downs and this isn't because you did something wrong to create this. And, and here we are having to figure out how to manage it. But you know, it's so interesting to me how entrenched this bias is. Just last evening, I went to a, um, a dinner program for a diabetes medication. And most of the people there uh, we're in primary care or treat diabetes. And we, we had a treat because the presenter was a cardiologist. So it was really nice to, to see that connection. And as I shared, you know, what I do, um, 
I could just hear the bias in the comments that my fellow colleagues were, were saying, you know, like, yeah, people just don't get it. You know, they just won't change. And, um, I could, you know, I didn't have time to really get into it with them. You know, I could say, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a chronic disease, you know, and it's just like anything else we treat. It, It can be resistant to treatment. And when we treat obesity, the treatment plans we give people are really intense and, you know, they have to think about it practically all day long and make a lot of decisions. And, it, you know, it's, it's often more challenging than you think. And some people were open to that, but many were not. They just went right back to, yeah, people just got to, you know, change. They just got to do this better and do that better. So we really have a long way to go. And when you think about someone who's dealing with that and then maybe sexual orientation or socioeconomic status on top of that, um, it's, it's really intense for them to, to manage. And they internalize a lot of shame and, and bias. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, so many people are struggling, not just with fighting their own biology and overcoming that, but blaming themselves for it and blaming willpower or whatnot. But like you said, there are individuals and groups of individuals who really struggle with a lot of these social determinants of health, which just makes it that much more difficult for them. So leading into that, we'd like to introduce Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford to the podcast. Hello, my name is Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford. I am an obesity medicine physician and scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and at Harvard Medical School. I'm one of the first fellowship trained obesity medicine physicians in the world. In this topic, as we explore this issue of obesity within diverse populations, I think it's important for you to know a bit about my background. I completed my master's of public health and health policy and management over 20 years ago at Emory University, where I first began to study obesity within the African-American community. After that, went on to complete my MD, um, then went on to complete my mid-career Master of Public Administration at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government here in uh, Massachusetts. In addition to that, I've also completed my MBA. When we look at my work, particularly in terms of looking at diversity and diverse populations, I've published over 120 peer-reviewed articles in journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of the American Medical Association, Annals of Internal Medicine, and the list goes on. Of course, all of the obesity journals like the International Journal of Obesity, where I serve on the editorial board, um, and also obesity. I serve as the Director of Equity for the Endocrine Division for the Massachusetts General Hospital. I serve as the Director of Diversity for the Nutrition Obesity Research Center here at Harvard. And I oversee all diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives as the senior advisor for the NIDDK's NORCs, which are the NORCs throughout the country, which are the Nutrition Obesity Research Centers throughout the United States, of which there are currently 12. So this unique perspective, as long, along with being a black woman physician scientist, really has shaped my dedication to the work of exploring obesity and its disparities, particularly in diverse populations. So there are a few things that I, I really want to talk about as we, we address this issue of, of obesity in diverse populations. And, and I particularly want to focus on you know, the black um, population as, as the population that really brought me to this work. Um, And what we do know is that obesity is by far more prevalent in um, black adults. Um, If you look at the most recent CDC maps that came out um, in September of 2021, we see a much higher likelihood of of 
prevalence of obesity within uh, the black population. We did talk about how the BMI charts might not quite um, do that justice and may be overestimating. But regardless of that, what we do know is that black Americans are more likely to die at early ages from all causes, including high blood pressure, diabetes, stroke, which are downstream impacts often of obesity itself. When we get to the differences in treatment, et cetera, I err on the side of being aggressive with treatment because I know that this treatment of obesity will often lead to complete remission of many of the downstream obesity-related diseases. And so this is why I have committed myself to this work. It's why I'm here. It's why I'm talking to you today. It's why I think that we continue to need to do the work to reduce disparities in obesity. Fatima, what are the differences in response to treatment in racial and ethnic minorities with regards to pharmacotherapy and bariatric surgery? Yeah, I think this is a great question, looking at the response to different treatment modalities for obesity and look at the variation of response that we've seen with racial and ethnic minority populations, particularly with pharmacotherapy and metabolic and bariatric surgery. So let's first focus on pharmacotherapy. Um, these are anti-obesity medications that are currently approved by the FDA to treat obesity in individuals that have a BMI of 27 or higher with a um, comorbidity, um, such as type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, heart disease, or those that have a BMI greater than or equal to 30. Um, we can utilize medications within all of those individuals. Some of the earlier medications, some of them actually have even been discontinued from the market, like subutramine, for example, showed that there was a difference in response to pharmacotherapy for racial and ethnic minorities compared to majority white populations, such that racial and ethnic minorities tended to lose less weight on these medications. Now, we've seen similar information with Orlistat. Orlistat, of course, is a pancreatic lipase inhibitor, and we've seen similar um, smaller, I guess, response of, with regards to weight loss with that particular um, drug. Now, with the newer GLP-1 agonists, particularly liraglutide, semaglutide, those two, what we're seeing in the current trials is that we're not seeing any treatment difference as it relates to response to pharmacotherapy. These are, of course, kind of the gold star agents, the ones that we're seeing um, with a lesser side effects than some of the more traditional medications. Um, and then semaglutide, of course, um, kind of a star player coming on the market just in June of 2021, where we're seeing um, in initial trials 14.9% of total body weight loss. I was very excited to see that these trials have begun to really examine racial ethnic differences in response. And thankfully, we're not seeing any major differences in terms of weight response as we did with some of the older drugs like subutramine and Orlistat. Now, let's look at metabolic and bariatric surgery. When we look at metabolic and bariatric surgery, we must recognize that the two most common forms of surgery are indeed the sleeve gastrectomy and the room-wide gastric bypass. When we look at some of the national data, and a lot of this data is, I think, can be updated, but if we're looking at 2012 to 2015 time span, what we've often seen is that there is up to an 8 to 10 percent decreased response for racial and ethnic minority populations compared with majority populations in terms of total body weight loss. Now, that can be significant, um, and it's important for us to note that there may be a variety of reasons for the differences in response. Maybe the differences may relate to some genetic reasons. Maybe it relates to um, other stressors, which can counteract the ability to achieve 
and maintain weight loss, much like racism and other factors that may play a role in their everyday life. And so when we've seen these studies that have looked at the smaller or response to surgical interventions, what we still see is a significant response. So I think the question that people ask me is, would you still send patients of racial and ethnic minority descent to surgery? Absolutely. What we see is that the overwhelming benefit that one achieves with um, metabolic and bariatric surgery, particularly those that have severe obesity or moderate obesity, um, is, is extremely um, beneficial in terms of not only improving their obesity, but also many of their obesity-related diseases. So I think when we put all of this together, looking at variations in response, um, it's important to note that overall, we still want to err on the side of treatment. Yeah, thank you, Fatima. It's, it's so important for us all to be aware of the differences in response to these various treatments for obesity, depending on the patient that we're talking to. We have traditionally utilized BMI as an indirect measure for obesity, but your research demonstrates that BMI varies based upon race or gender. So can you take us through this? Absolutely. I, you know, I really want to spend some time talking about the BMI or the body mass index, which I think is a flawed way of us evaluating um, obesity. Um, it's still what we use um, through the World Health Organization, the CDC, of course, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, but it's with flaws. And I think it's important for us to look at the history of BMI and how it came to be about um, first of all, the BMI charts were not based on anything in medicine. They were actually based on actuarial tables from the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company from the 1930s and 1940s here in the United States. Based upon that, they determined what was the likelihood of death and dying based upon weight status and then developed these cutoffs, these BMI cutoffs that we use to shape our decisions with regards to clinical care for overweight and obesity in populations today. There are some major issues with the Metropolitan Life Insurance Tables. First of all, they did not insure persons that were of African descent, persons that were um, Latinx. Those are the two largest minority groups here in the United States. So that means that these VMI charts and table were not based upon persons that look like me, a black woman physician scientist. Um, whether regardless of my profession, I just was not included within this um, group of measurements. Um, and like I said, it was not based on anything that was taken from healthcare. So we've used this, we extrapolate this to all individuals as if all persons are the same. When we look at BMI, we give the same cutoff for a man who's 56 years old that we give for a woman who's 25 year old in terms of weight category and status. And you can imagine that that might be indeed flawed. This was so problematic that I decided to actually go and do this research. I looked at the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey data through 2018 to determine what would be the weight cutoffs as it relates to major chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, hypertension, and determine what these cutoffs would be for both men and women of the majority groups, um, i.e. white men and women, and then also black um, and Latinx men and women. What I actually found by looking at the current data from the 2018 era is that for men across all racial ethnic groups, the BMI cutoff, which is typically 30 for evaluating obesity, actually goes down. And by that, I mean that the cutoff ranges between 26 
and 29 in terms of when we should be really intervening for men across all racial ethnic groups. Now, for both white and Hispanic women, what we saw that it also did was it shifted down below 30 as the major cutoffs. But interestingly enough, for black women, the group that is known to have the highest obesity rates by current BMI standards, the BMI criteria actually shifted up to somewhere between 31 and 33 is the cutoff, which means that we might be significantly overestimating the impact of obesity within the black female population compared to other groups. It goes to show you that we are not all homogenous. There is some heterogeneity that we must take into account when we're viewing the BMI chart. And as I stated at the outset, this is an indirect measure of body weight and adiposity, which is fat tissue. And so we need to be really thoughtful about this when we are treating our individual patients, particularly thinking about how we use precision or personalization of medications to really refine our treatment strategies for different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And of course, looking at gender differences. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And we know that BMI is really just a screening tool and that we need to know, understand more about the body composition and how the, the extra weight is affecting the patient's health. And that's really very individualized. So I think you're right that we really do need to, to look at the BMI again for, for all patients and in particular for those in, in ethnic minorities. Fatima, some of your research demonstrates that racial and ethnic minorities have less access to care for obesity, even when they have the same level of insurance, uh, and this is in children and adolescents. Why do you think this is the case? Let's look at the disparities in care, and I think that what we're going to look at is one of my papers that I've, taught, I've written on beyond insurance, and I look particularly at the Medicaid population. For those of you who are listening, when we're looking at the Medicaid population, we're looking at a group that typically has a lower socioeconomic status. And so you would presume that if we're getting um, the same level insurance, Medicaid, which of course is a government-sponsored insurance for those that have lower socioeconomic um, status, that we would have similarities in terms of who's getting access to care. Particularly in this paper, I looked at bariatric surgery, which is, we know, the gold standard treatment for those that have severe obesity. The problem was that even though racial and ethnic minorities have higher rates of obesity, um, particularly um, Black and Hispanic, which we have much more data on than, for example, the indigenous population, but we know they have high rates of obesity also, what we found was that white individuals that were insured with Medicaid were much more likely to get bariatric surgery than their underrepresented minority counterparts. And this particularly is disturbing, like I said, because there is a greater burden of obesity, particularly severe obesity in communities of color. Now, why do I think this exists? I think it comes back to the idea of bias. And when we talk about bias, there are two different forms of bias that we might be speaking of. One might be implicit bias, this biases that we don't know that we have, versus explicit biases, those biases that we know that we have and that we express. So when we look at this, I think that probably implicit bias played more of a role. Um, physicians and other healthcare providers not being aware of the fact that they are more likely 
to send those that are, are white to surgery than those that are from racial and ethnic minorities. Um, but I think it's something that we need to evaluate. Are we delivering care at the same level for all pa pa patient populations and even maybe going above and beyond to deliver better care to those that have come from um, an issue with having less access, um, less trust within providers. Um, and also what we know is just being less likely to receive care across all domains in terms of chronic disease, but obesity being one that's most problematic since it is the precursor to many other downstream issues. Fatima, you've written about the link of obesity and racism and recorded a recent TEDx talk on the collision of the three pandemics of obesity, COVID-19, and racism. Would you mind explaining this connection between these three? Absolutely. I'm very thankful for you to have brought up my recent TEDx talk on, on the collision of three pandemics, COVID-19, obesity, and racism. So let's, let's look at the three and how they interrelate. Um, COVID-19, I think we can all agree, no matter where we are, no matter our race, our gender, um, country of origin, has affected our lives. It has become the pandemic that has affected all of us in our daily operations, even to this day in the post-vaccine pandemic is what I call it. Um, but what we do know is that COVID was an, an, an acute inflammatory process. And by that, you know, an acute illness is caused and derived that may lead to either sickness or death um, in certain individuals, over 700,000 individuals at the time of this recording. And so this is a major issue. Now, when we look at COVID-19, this acute inflammatory process, we must look at obesity, which we know to be in a chronic inflammatory state. Obesity has been around. It has been pandemic for quite some time. When we look at the rates of obesity here in the United States, what we do know is that 42.4% of the U.S. adult population actually has the disease of obesity based upon 2018 estimates. With that, we had the collision of this chronic inflammatory disease of obesity with the acute inflammatory disease of COVID-19. What we know from data is that patients that have obesity have higher likelihood of being sick, needing to be on a ventilator, and unfortunately death regardless of their age range, which is of significant concern because we're losing young people with obesity much more than we are losing those that do not have the disease of obesity. And then let's get into this talk of racism. I call this reckoning with racism to be a thing that we began to really embrace, unfortunately during the pandemic, with the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor. Um, George Floyd, of course, rose to a certain level that you saw marches and demonstrations that were um, part of the Black Lives Matter movement um, and other movements here in the U.S. and actually in countries around the world in the middle of lockdown for many of us. I think it came at the the idea of us being able to view as many of us sequestered in our own homes, trying to kind of you know, make sure we made it through COVID-19, this frustration with police brutality against disenfranchised groups, particularly black and brown um, individuals. So what we had was this interplay of three different collisions or three different pandemics at the same time. Racism, obesity, and COVID-19 coming together, rearing their ugly head and showing us how these three can really lead to significant shorter lifespan um, and I think that that's important. 
when I go back and evaluate this idea of racism and its role in obesity, um, I published a paper that also covered this in the Journal of Internal Medicine, where we talk about racism and racism actually leading to inflammation in the body. So the best study to evaluate this was the Black Women's Health Study, which was a, is a, the largest prospective study to evaluate the health of Black women, um, particularly Black women that tend to be college educated and at least middle, middle class. What we've seen in that study, which has been going on for many years now, my mom's even a participant in this study, is that um, women that experience either daily or lifetime racism have a much higher likelihood of having obesity. What that racism does is it leads to chronic stress exposure. Stress we know leads to storage of adipose or fat in the midsection particularly. Fat around the midsection, never great for us. But if you're experiencing either daily or a lifetime of racism, you can imagine how this increases your odds of having fat in areas that are bad for your health and increasing the risk for obesity. What we also saw during the COVID-19 um, pandemic was that the individuals that were dying quicker, dying more frequently, were those from racial and ethnic minority backgrounds. And this interplay between these three of obesity, COVID, and racism, I think, played a major role. Fatima, you've spoken about the need for a diverse workforce to address obesity disparities. Do you mind explaining this importance? Absolutely. The importance of a diverse work, workforce for the treatment of obesity is of paramount um, concern. And I'm just going to explain to you from the perspective of what patients encounter when they seek care and treatment. What we do know is that bias, which we've talked about a little bit earlier, is common in the United States. It's common towards persons that have obesity and I would say that weight bias is our second most common form of bias, but the most common form of bias in the United States today is indeed race bias. So you can imagine this overlay of race and weight bias leading to poor outcomes from those that are from racial and ethnic minority populations, and that this interplay being really deleterious to longevity for these patient populations. One of the key issues that we have to address when we're looking at this idea of, of trust and getting adequate care in obesity is the historical atrocities that have led to black communities, for example, not seeking care from um, majority physicians um, or just everyday circumstances which lead people from racial and ethnic minority backgrounds to not want to seek care from those that don't identify with their lived experience. Right now, when we're looking at the percentage, for example, of black doctors in the US, so we have about 13% of our population in the United States that's black, um, but only about 5% of doctors fit that. When the AAMC, which is the American Association of Medical Colleges, evaluates doctors and where they would most likely to serve, where they most likely to provide care, what we found is that black doctors are more likely to serve in areas of the black community or um, un other underserved groups than any other subset of doctors. The AAMC began to evaluate this question back in 2000, and they've evaluated it every five years since then. And that has been a consistent theme that black doctors are willing to care for diverse patient populations in often underserved areas. 
So if we don't have the doctors in those areas where we know obesity rates are highest, you can imagine that they won't be able to get care. Couple that with the notion or the knowledge that persons that have obesity that are from diverse populations are less likely to even receive the diagnosis to even move to care. So you can see that there's a compounding of issues that we have. And having a diverse workforce, uh, people that can identify with the patient population yields better outcomes. It's why patients wait for months and months and months to see me as a black woman physician because they feel like I will hear them, I will care, and I will be there for the long haul as I work to treat their chronic disease of obesity. Fatima, you have recently published a strong statement on race and racism in nutrition with leaders in nutrition. What are some of your key take-home points? Absolutely. I I was very thankful um, to the editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition for allowing me to be a part of this work to evaluate race and racism in the nutrition and obesity literature. And I think some of the key take-home points from that work are, are really some of the following. When we look at race and ethnicity, we have to recognize that they're different. You know, race is, you know, whether someone's black or white. Ethnicity is the lived experience of someone. So when we talk about someone being Hispanic and black, they have cultural values and beliefs that fall under the Hispanic um, umbrella, but they may also be a black race. And so race and ethnicity are important. When we try to kind of put people in categories and groups when we're looking at clinical research, often we fail to realize that there's differences between race and ethnicity. Um, we have we make some major assumptions about groups that may not be founded on adequately powered data. And so our goal with this particular work was to try to begin to do as much personalization and precision using genomics, genetics, to really hone in on what the differences are, because we know that race um, is a social construct. It's not really a biological construct. And so there are flaws in us just looking at it by race and ethnicity instead of looking at the nuances that exist between individuals. For any of us that have done um, any of these Ancestry or 23andMe, we know that there's a lot of heterogeneity between us. We're not just necessarily all black or all white. Um, There's, you know, mixtures of who we are. So why not hone in and get the right information about what we need um, as opposed to making just gross generalizations about certain populations? Now, this requires more resources, but it allows us to better inform our care and treatment of patients um, with regards to nutrition guidelines, with regards to obesity. And so I think it's important for us to not be so cavalier and our grouping and just assuming that one group is better or worse than the other without doing some deep dive into what's happening at the genomic level and things like GWAS or genome-wide association studies where we're able to evaluate this in much more depth and really yield better outcomes for our patient population. So Fatima, healthy food may not be widely available, especially for patients with lower socioeconomic status who may not have transportation or may not even have a supermarket that has fresh fruits or vegetables. So can you talk to us a little bit about access to healthful foods and how we can help our patients gain access to healthier foods? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at 
the food quality that's available to individuals. And I think food quality is extremely important. Um, notice I didn't say food calories or anything, but food quality makes a difference. And when I talk about food quality, I'm talking about um, things that are minimally processed or not processed at all, things that fall under the umbrella of lean protein, whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. We know that access to um, these foods um, are sparse, particularly in communities with lower socioeconomic status where there may not be a grocery store, there may not be delivery services that even allow for delivery of these fresh fruits and vegetables as, as many of us um, embrace um, food um, and grocery delivery services. And so what does that lead to? We know that leads to poor nutritional status, poor nutritional status um, and processed, highly processed, easily accessible foods and things like dollar stores, et cetera, around the country, um, unfortunately lead to greater storage of adipose. Going back to this storage of fat issue, and we do know that this is more commonplace, unfortunately, in certain racial and ethnic groups that um, will have a tendency or higher tendency of having lower socioeconomic status here in the U.S. So this definitely plays a part. And even this idea of food insecurity, I think we started to talk a lot more about food insecurity during the COVID-19 pandemic. And this became an issue as we recognized that even those that were in middle class status because of job loss, et cetera, were running into issues where they were food insecure, not knowing where their next meal would come from and having to just accept what was given. Unfortunately, if we look at food pantries, much like my parents oversee um, one of the major ones in Atlanta, is that the quality of food is not always ideal. Um, there are strides in these um, food pantry settings to um, improve the quality of the food. I can tell you that my parents have taken these strides of Pello, um, paired with HelloFresh, for example, to have lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. But then let's look at what, what we're able to do. So if you have lower socioeconomic status, nowhere for storage, let's say maybe not even a refrigerator, where do you store these fresh fruits, vegetables, et cetera? We know they go bad quickly. Do you even have a mechanism by which to cook and prepare them? So there's multiple reasons why being um, of low SES, low socioeconomic status, um, which unfortunately sometimes corresponds to being in a racial ethnic minority population, will lead to poor nutritional quality and outcomes and then subsequent obesity and obesity-related diseases. Yes, Fatima, this is such a big issue. And unfortunately, we saw it even more during the pandemic. And I had some patients who lived in the city of Chicago. You know, I live more out in the suburbs, but patients in the city telling me that even at the grocery stores, there was just nothing available and that was a really hard and scary time. And especially if patients don't have refrigeration, that makes it really, really challenging. So, you know, if it's available, I would say things like canned fish, like tuna or salmon or canned chicken can sometimes be more affordable, shelf-stable options for protein. And eggs are a great cost-effective source of protein as well. Or other times, you know, dried beans and legumes or also nuts like peanuts or seeds like sunflower seeds can be affordable and good sources of protein, healthy fats and fiber as well. And if our patients do have access to a freezer, I'll often recommend getting frozen berries and frozen veggies or buying meat in bulk and freezing the rest. 
And that way they don't have to worry as much about food spoiling. And um, the fruits and the veggies in the frozen section actually have the same nutritional value as fresh fruits and veggies because they're frozen at their, their peak of ripeness. So that can be a good option for some people. And, you know, like you said, I always remind people to focus on the quality of the food. So if a food is higher quality and it contains more protein and those healthy fats and fiber, then patients will stay full longer. So they may not have to eat as frequently, which can help save them money as well. So Fatima, how do you approach the topics of nutrition and physical activity with your patients as a part of a comprehensive obesity management program? You know, the key thing I think when you're working with, and this goes back to the question that was asked with regards to the the diverse, um, you know, patient provider connection. So as a black woman, if I'm talking to black patients, depending upon what, you know, what love, where, where they are in terms of education, where, where they're from, I will tailor my conversation and even how I talk to them to fit what I think would be most comfortable to them. So, um, you know, as a black woman being raised in the South, I, I have lots of perspectives on, of what that looks like, but I'm able to kind of come down and get into some nuances because I know what the culture is. I live this culture every day of being black in, in the U.S. And, and what things people might prefer. And so I think about, you know, it's about being culturally appropriate. When I go back to my work in, um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was finishing my master's of public health, um, all of the work that I did was looking at obesity within the African-American population um, and one of the big studies that I worked on um, was healthy body, healthy spirit. And it was a study targeted towards the black church community in Atlanta. When we prepared the resources and conversation starters with the community, part of the reason why it was successful is they had people like me making sure that we were the ones that delivered the entire program. Um, not that there were no persons that were um, white, but um, that would not have been as well received within this population. Um, and so all of the people that worked for the project, um, I would say a large majority, 90 plus percent were um, black um, men and women um, that were able to deliver the content. We also thought about when we were preparing things like cookbooks, we thought about what foods fit the typical fare of what they would eat. Um, if soul food's a big thing in the black community, how do you prepare soul food in a way that's healthy so that the taste um, is also good, but it's also healthy for them. So we thought about that and we had our dietitians work to develop cookbook um, items that were quick and easily accessible um, for this patient population, but also, you know, yielded the palate that they're used to. You know, if you're preparing collard greens, how do you prepare collard greens in a way that's healthy? That's a very healthy food that's traditionally prepared in the South, but it can be prepared in a way that's unhealthy and it can be prepared in a way that's healthy. How do you prepare your meats in a way that's healthy? Broiling as opposed to frying, making them still taste palatable with good seasoning. These are the things that I always tell my patients um, about how to do it. I actually may eat, even tell them. So something like, you know, roasting skinless, boneless chicken thighs, usually dark meat is preferred. Um, you could do that, you know, using a non-stick foil, spraying your your skinless, boneless chicken thighs with um, a non-stick spray and seasoning with something like the Chubbs, um, you know, seasoning rub, which is very, very popular within the black community. 
that's a very, very healthy way to prepare something. And it only takes, you know, about 20, 25 minutes for you to go from freezer to table. So it's about, you know, thinking about how we can prepare things in ways that fit the cultural norms so that it's not too much of a deviation from what status quo is. Yes, Fatima, I totally agree with you that we have to tailor our approach to each individual patient. And we may all have patients with various different backgrounds, cultures, and ethnicities. So it's so important that we take those things into account when we're building rapport with our patients. And even though I may not have a personal experience with certain cultures or lifestyles, but what I can do as a provider is to ask those open-ended, genuine questions so that I can have a better understanding of their culture and understand the role that food plays in it and how they prepare their food. And actually, I really like learning about this. And maybe it's because I grew up in an international school. But, you know, I also feel like if you show a genuine interest in wanting to understand someone's culture, my experience is that patients respond really well to this and they're usually really happy to share these things with you. And they're excited that you want to know about this. And then you can work together with them on ideas on how you can make the same types of foods that they enjoy, but make them a little bit more healthful. So, you know, one example of that is I remember I had a, a young Filipino male in my clinic and he had severe obesity and, and really severe, poorly controlled diabetes. And as we were going through his nutrition history, he talked about the big role that rice played in his eating culture. And he had rice with like every meal. And so we ended up talking and deciding to try to switch that to cauliflower rice and just still use the same spices and everything. And he loved it. And his whole family changed to cauliflower rice. And just making that one change really helped him lose a lot of weight and really get his diabetes under control. So you know, I think it's just so important that we understand where our patients are coming from and meet them where they are. All right, ladies. Well, we could probably keep talking all day, but it's time for us to wrap it up. So thank you so much to Sandra and Fatima for joining us today and for a really great discussion on these super important topics. And thank you so much to our listeners for joining us as well. <laughs> Thank you, Sam, Carly, and Fatima for joining us on MP Pulse. I want to personally thank you all for sharing your expertise and experiences on this very important topic. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode as valuable as I did and can apply some of what was discussed in your practice. If you want to learn more about obesity management while earning continuing education credit, visit the AANPCE Center at aanp.org slash cecenter and check out Clinical Advantage Bootcamp, Intermediate Certificate of Obesity Management Fundamentals. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. Mm-hmm.